A welcome to part five of Five Millennia Jewish History in Five Weeks. Violence, vicissitudes, and valiancy. Uh, this is going to tell the story of the Jewish people in medieval times. And I want to start off with, I think, what could be considered a constant in Jewish history. No matter what period in time in Jewish history, we can say that there's been amongst the Jewish people a relentless and uncompromising dedication to Torah study, uh, number one. Number two, the presence of yeshivos, of dedicated houses of scholarship. In fact, we're told that even as far back as the sons of Noah, Shem and Avery, each one of them established a yeshiva. Jacob was a student of one of these yeshivas. Abraham and Isaac were told they also were, even at advanced ages, they were in a yeshiva as well, in a house of scholarship. In the 220s of the Common Era, there were two institutions, two massive institutions that are going to play a very central role in Jewish history, established in Babylon. One called Sura, a city called Sura, and the other one in Pumpadisa. And what we'll see, that with the destruction of the Second Temple, and the disbandment of the Sanhedrin, these two yeshivas are going to take a tremendous prominence in Jewish history. In fact, we could say that the center of Jewish life from the disbandment of the Sanhedrin in the 5th century is going to be the yeshivas, beginning with the two massive yeshivas in Babylon, in Surah and Pubadisa. Now, we're told in the Midrash that the Almighty made a pledge. The pledge, of course, is in the Torah, that the Jewish people will never cease but more specifically, that the Jewish people will never forget the Torah. Now, which Torah are we referring to? The oral Torah, of course. Because the written Torah, we have written down, we have many, many copies of it. How is the Almighty going to ensure that we're go- going to remember the, the oral Torah forever and ever forget it? So the Midrash tells us that the Almighty establishes, established two yeshivas, two dedicated locations of Torah studies that will never cease amongst the people. And in fact, the Almighty makes a pledge that these yeshivas won't see captivity, they won't see heresy, there's going to be no plunder, even the Greeks won't be able to get them, and certainly not Edom as well. And in fact, there's a remarkable story during the Holocaust uh, where all of European Jewry was in turmoil. There was an inferno in, in Europe destroying everyone, Uh, Yet there was one yeshiva, the Mir Yeshiva from Poland, that they managed to get passports for the entire faculty and student body of the yeshiva, and the entire yeshiva as one. Teachers, students, families, everyone managed to cross over all of Asia on the Trans-Siberian Railroad to end up in Vladivostok all the way in, uh, in the east, to cross the Sea of Japan and to reestablish a yeshiva while Europe is asunder in, in Kobe, Japan initially, and then in, uh, in Shanghai, in Japan-occupied Shanghai, for the rest of the war. So for the duration of the war, when European Jewry is being totally destroyed, there's an entire yeshiva, complete, with faculty and students, that is still existing and studying Torah all halfway across the world. And in fact, there are those that have speculated that this pledge that the Almighty makes, that there are always going to be yeshivas amongst the Jewish people, indeed is still active and still present, and that's why the Almighty has to keep his pledge, and Torah will forge ahead. Uh, after the Talmud is written, we go into an era called the era of the Gaonim. The Gaonim is the term given for the heads of these yeshivas. You have two yeshivas in Surah and Pupadisa. There are other yeshivas as well, two primary yeshivas. And the heads of the yeshivas are called the Gaonim, 
And they're generally accepted as not only the heads of the yeshiva, but also the spiritual leaders of the worldwide Jewish community. Like we spoke about last time, twice a year, the entire Jewish community, not just the students and the scholars, everyone for two months a year will come to these massive yeshivas, have massive conventions of Torah study. But the Geonim, the Geonim, they themselves, they had a specific role in perpetuating Torah. They were in charge of teaching, of explaining and clarifying the Talmud, of course, which was difficult to do, uh, especially compounded by the fact that the Talmud was written in a foreign language. The Talmud was written in Babylon at a time where everyone was speaking Aramaic. Over the course of history, people are going to stop speaking Aramaic, they'll move on to foreign languages, other languages, and the Talmud became even a little bit more difficult for them to do, and the Gaonim were responsible chiefly in teaching Torah to their generations. Not only that, many questions of complexities in the Talmud, of conclusions of the Talmud, of things that were unknown or unmentioned in the Talmud, at least not explicitly, uh, they all reached the doors of the Gaonim, and of course the Gaonim of every, of every generation wrote books that explain and clarify the Talmud as well. Uh, over this period, we meet some very transformative and memorable figures in Jewish history, famous names we've heard of perhaps. Rav Shriron, Rav Haidon is going to make an appearance later on in our story. Rav Achaidon, he wrote the first post-Talmudic book called the Shi'iltos. It's a book that's set upon the weeks of the year, and it gives like a nice introduction to the Parsha and a certain halacha of the Parsha, a very fascinating book uh, that, uh, that he wrote. Rav Amron Gon, one of the Gaonim, he was the first to codify the Sidur, the prayer. We know the prayer is a fixed prayer, but it was never actually written down and codified until he did it. And the most famous and impactful of the, of the Gaonim, Rav Sa'ad Yergon. Rav Sa'ad Yergon wrote a lot, voluminously, a great, great Torah leader as well, but also wrote a very famous and transformative book called the Imunos Videos, the Faith and the Knowledge where he synthesized Torah with prevalent philosophy, something that Maimonides, several hundred years later, would do the same. The Gaonic era lasts for about 400 years, and it coincides, the end of the Gaonic era coincides with the end of Babylon as the center of Jewish life. From then on, Babylon, while it will still have a Jewish community, up to 1952, when the, uh, the Jewish communities that were there and that had been there since the times of the destruction of the first temple, they've been there for about 2,400 years uninterrupted, they were kicked out and sent to Israel. Uh, From then on, Europe, North Africa, and Spain are going to be the center of Jewish life. And the new era is not going to be called the Gaonim, it's going to be called the Rishonim. The word Rishon means the first the first uh, of the rabbis and scholars and leaders that are going to do tremendous efforts in uh, in developing oral Torah. Now, there's a tremendous episode that happened at the end of the Gaonic era that really ushered in uh, the next phase of Jewish life. While the rabbis and the yeshivos were centered primarily in Babylon, Jewish communities had begun to develop and sprout elsewhere. So, for example, North Africa, lots of Jewish communities were there. Places like Yemen, which were essentially close to Babylon, were beginning uh, to flourish, uh, Yemen, Persia, as well. But as far away as France and Italy and Spain and even in England, we start to see Jewish communities. The problem was that there were Jewish communities, but they didn't have Jewish leadership. There was no Torah leadership to uh, be at the helm of these uh, developing nascent Jewish communities. So there's a story that happens that happens at this time, which we look at it as the Almighty uh, essentially taking care of the Jewish people to ensure that they flourish. There were four Geonim 
that were on a fundraising trip. Now, where, what they exactly were fundraising for, the accounts differ. Some say they were fundraising to ransom one of their colleagues. Others say that they were fundraising for their institutions. Uh, yet a third account has them fundraising to pay for dowries for poor brides. Either way, they're fundraising, they're out at sea, and they get kidnapped. They get kidnapped by pirates. The pirates don't realize who they have there. They just think they have Jews. And they sell them as slaves. And these four great rabbis are bought by four different communities across the world. So we have one of them ending up in Alexandria, one of them in Sicily, one of them in Tunis and Tunisia, and lastly, one of them in Fez in Morocco. And what happens is, is that each one of these uh, captives ends up climbing to the helm of the leadership of the community that redeemed them, and by dint of that, establishing Torah in their, in their new communities. The most famous of those four captives is Rav Chushil Gon. Now, we don't know a lot so much about him. He ended up in Fez in Morocco. Uh, but he brought along with him his son, who is going to be a transformative Jewish leader. His name is Rabbeinu Hananel. Rabbeinu Hananel is a very pivotal character in, in Jewish history because he essentially marks the transition from the Gaonic era onto the era of the Roshonim. He's sort of the bridge. Now, what he did, one of his innovations, was to write a commentary in all of Talmud. Uh, he was the first to do that, to take all of Talmud and to write a commentary. We see this is sort of a theme of this era that the rabbis are going to invest a lot of effort in writing down what was left over of the Oral Torah. So the Oral Torah, of course, written, written down primarily in the Mishnah of the Talmud, but there's still vast parts of the Oral Torah that were yet unwritten. As to understanding of the Talmud as part of the Oral Torah as well, certainly the halacha, the practical application of Jewish law, that part was yet unwritten. So here's the beginning of a new era. We'll see a lot more about it. First of its kind, a commentary on all of Talmud. Now, he uh, headed a large yeshiva in Tunisia. Uh, and he was famous, of course, and pivotal and transformative. But he's going to have a student who's going to be ever more pivotal and transformative. And that is, of course, one of the most impactful Jewish leaders of all time, Rabbi Yitzchak Al-Fasi which means Rabbi Yitzchak from Fez. He's known as the Rif, and he's going to, of course, end up, he spent a portion of his life in, in Morocco and end up in Spain. And he will be the one to usher in um, the golden era of Spain where Spanish Jewry really took off. Now, his contribution to writing of the Oral Torah cannot be understated. He wrote a commentary that's, until today, in the back of every volume of Talmud, it's called Sefer Halachos, which means the Book of Laws. Essentially, it contains the laws of the Talmud, the halacha, practical application of the Talmud. If you wanted to study Talmud and to gain the laws only, you'd have to study all of it, plus you'd have to understand it, and you have to also know when there is a disagreement in the Talmud, which one of those is the conclusion. If you had a teacher, great. If you were a great scholar, also great. But if you did not have a teacher, or you, did, you were not a great scholar, or didn't want to put in the great effort uh, needed to achieve halacha, comes along the riff, and he really starts to solve the problem by condensing the Talmud, by, by making a digest of all of Talmud, but only pulling out the sections that are applicable uh, for the actual law. Now, this is going to be the first of its kind uh, to take Talmud and to make a codification of halacha. That's going to be the beginning here with the riff. 
but it's going to grow and see a whole new light under his spiritual heir, the Rambam. Now, the Rif died in Spain. He was already more than 100 years old, lived a very long and fruitful life. His student was Rabbi Yosef Ibn Megash, known as the Rimagash. That was his successor. The Rimagash had a student known, uh, who's known to us as Rabbi Maimon, who's the father, of course, of the famous great eagle, as he's known, the choicest of human species, as he was nicknamed, the man of the millennium, as we call him, the Rambam. The Rambam writes in his books that he considers himself a student of the Rimagash, who was a student of the Rif, despite the fact that when the Rambam uh, was three years old, the Rimagash had already passed. Uh, the idea behind that is the Rambam is essentially telling us that he's still living in the era where people were able to uh, incorporate in their teachings to their next generation all of oral Torah. We could trace the Rambam all the way back to Moses because he's in the era where teachers and students had that special relationship that a teacher would impart upon their students all of their knowledge. Thus, the Rambam can say, my father taught me everything that he knows. He received everything that he knows from his teacher, who was the Rimidash, who got it from the Rif, and that already brings us back to the era of the Gaonim, back to the era of the authors of the Talmud of the Mishnah, back to the prophets, and of course, all the way progressively back. Okay, so that's, that's the foundation of a Spanish Jewry. Uh, on the other side of the river, so to speak, the Ashkenazi community has its founding at this time as well. Rav Haidon, one of the last of the Gaonim, he had a student by the name of Rabbeinu Gershom, who's known also by his nickname, Rabbeinu Gershom Meor Hadola, the light of the exile. He was the one who moved to France, and he established a yeshiva in France. And he is the beginning, he heralds the beginning of the Ashkenazic uh, of, of the Ashkenazic Rishonim. Now, the word Sephard is from the Hebrew word for Spain. So the Spanish Jewish community became the Sephardim, and the Ashkenazic, which is the name for Germany, is the Ashkenazic uh, side of the isle. And Rabbeinu Gershom Meoradol is the beginning of that. Now, he's perhaps most famously known for his edicts. He, as the, the leader of Ashkenazic Jewry, he uh, enacted several rules, several uh, items, uh, doctrines of legislation that became obligatory to all of Ashkenazi Jewry. Uh, the most famous of them is that he prohibited polygamy. Polygamy, by the strict letter of the law, is not prohibited uh, in Jewish law. He prohibited that unless he said, if you want to have, if you want to have polygamy more than one wife, which clearly he advised against. But if you wanted, you would need to get the signatures of a hundred rabbis from three different countries that they have to sign off on it. And of course, at that point in time in history, that was essentially impossible. Uh, but till this day, we are bound, Ashkenazi Jews are bound uh, by this uh, edict. Additionally, he prohibited unilateral divorce. By the strict letter of the law, a man is the only person responsible in the divorce. The woman has no say in the matter. He enacted that the wife has to sign off as well. It has to be unilateral, it has to be, it has to be bilateral. And lastly, on a totally different uh, realm, he prohibited uh, opening up someone else's mail, opening up someone else's correspondence. So he's the beginning of Ashkenazic leadership, Ashkenazic community. His student is Rabbi Yaakov ben Yakar, who is famous for being the teacher of the most famous of the Ashkenazic Rishonim, Rashi. 
Thus, we could see that the most significant, the two most significant rabbis of this era, Rashi on the Ashkenazic side and the Rambam on the Sephardic side, are, are very closely linked to the previous era, to the Rishonim, via their teachers. Now, at this point in time, we see a bifurcation, a separation of the Ashkenazic and Sephardic communities. We're going to have developing communities where the Sephardic communities are going to be under Muslim law. Not Muslim law, Muslim, Muslim control. Uh, now, the Ashkenazim are going to be living under Christian control. Therefore, those two communities for several hundred years are going to be entirely separate of each other. Uh, and not only that, communication between those two will be very difficult because uh, that will be viewed as tantamount to espionage. In fact, some people, people would get executed if they would actually have any encountering with people from uh, the other countries. Thus, for several generations, we're going to have each one of these two independent communities existing almost unaware of each other. Not only that, uh, as a general rule, we could say that not only they they didn't have interactions, but their Torah traditions that were developing and being written down and being clarified and codified are going to exist parallel to each other. Thus, Rashi did not have any access to any of the Torah that was being developed in the Sephardic world. And conversely, according to most opinions, the Rambam, who came much later, after Rashi, he did not have access to Rashi's writings. Thus, we have developing two Jewish communities that each are enacting their own customs and their own understandings of Torah and clarifying it in their own way that begin to uh, be slightly different. Now, Rashi is the greatest of the Ashkenazic Roshonim. Uh, his name is an acronym, Reish Shin Yud, for either Rabbi Shlomo Yitzchaki. Alternatively, people have said that it is an acronym for Rabban Shel Yisrael, the teacher of Israel, because he is the foremost commentator on Talmud. He is the foremost commentator on Torah and, in, and essentially on Tanakh. Now, he was capable with, he was a very skilled commentator, and he was capable of infusing his commentary with such nuance to convey ideas and questions and answers very, very clearly with very few words. Rashi is indispensable if you want to study Torah. You can't read it without it. He was able to, he was able to tell you every time any word appeared in Tanakh, and thus he could help you in trying to understand what the, the, what the Torah means. And his commentary was so transformative that over history, there were super commentaries. Commentaries on his commentary were written afterwards. What's remarkable about his writings is that his writings really scaled nicely. Uh, any newcomer to Jewish learning opens up Rashi and Rashi guides them. Any advanced scholar in Jewish learning is challenged by the preciseness of Rashi's words. Uh, his contemporaries have written that before Rashi came along and wrote his commentary on the Talmud, the Talmud was a sealed book. It had everything in the air, but remember, it was written in a foreign language. Uh, foreign words, Rashi translates all the words. The flow of the Talmud as to what's a question, what's an answer, what's a statement, all that is clarified by Rashi. The Talmud is written very tersely. The flow, there's no punctuation whatsoever. So it's, it's very hard if you just read the words of the Talmud to know exactly where you're holding in midst of the dialogue and the narrative that the Talmud is interwoven with. 
Rashi helps you all alone that way. Indeed, we could say that Torah study and Talmud study is impossible without Rashi. Now, Rashi started, he headed a yeshiva in Troyes in France, and Rashi's descendants, his sons, in law, he didn't have any. He didn't have any sons. His sons-in-law and his grandchildren, they continued his leadership of that institution, and they also wrote a revolutionary commentary in Talmud called the Tosfos, which means additions. Now, what's interesting about this is that they actually were the first generation that got access to the Sephardic traditions, the Sephardic writings, the writings of Rabbeinu Hananel from the Sephardic uh, communities. And what they did, remarkable work, what they did is they took Rashi and they overlaid it and they contrasted and compared it uh, with the alternative tradition of the Sephardic communities. What resulted was is that they, it's a tremendous um, wellspring of Torah that they developed where they present Rashi, they present uh, the positions of Rabbeinu Hananel and others, and then they compare and contrast them and ask and debate them in a, in a wonderful, fantastic way. Not only that, they also departed from Rashi's policy of never leaving the page. If you read Rashi, Rashi is there to guide you in understanding what you're reading. You read the Tosafot, they have a much broader scope. They're looking every, at everything in the entirety of the Talmud and trying to compare and contrast that with whatever's on the page. What resulted was a monumental and magisterial commentary in all of Talmud of profound depth and scope. And indeed, if you open up any Talmud today, you'll find in the inner margins the commentary of Rashi, on the outer margins the commentary of his, of his school that he developed in, in the form of the Tosafos. The era of Ashkenazic peace and security that was able to spawn such tremendous literary, literary accomplishments uh, would be very short. Uh, towards the end of Rashi's life, the Ashkenazic community will be ravaged by the First Crusade. The, the Pope, Pope Urban, I think the second, he called on all Christians to march to Jerusalem and to recapture the holy city from the Muslims, and indeed they did that successfully. Uh, unfortunately, along the way, they massacred and pillaged Jewish communities and performed, of course, what would be emblematic of Christian persecution of Jews in the medieval ages. Uh, they performed mass forced baptism. Once they got to Jerusalem and successfully captured it, they took all the Jews of Jerusalem, the numbers estimate between somewhere between 1,000 and 3,000 people, they put them in all the synagogues, lit them on fire, and thereby destroyed the entirety of the Jewish population. All told, the First Crusade resulted in the murder and slaughter and massacre of somewhere between 10 and 25,000 Jews. To us, that doesn't sound like so much because that's two days in Auschwitz. But if you think about that, like, that's, that, those were numbers, and that, that was slaughter on a scale that they hadn't seen since the destruction, the destruction of the Second Temple and the after effects uh, a thousand years prior. But this also marked the beginning of what's going to be a millennium of Christian persecution and anti-Semitism. Rashi himself and Rashi's community, they were spared. They, were, they actually had the local bishop. He ensured their safety. But this is going to be a turning point in, uh, in, in, in history in the, of the Jewish communities in France that there's going to be over the, the, the next couple of hundred years tremendous anti-Semitism and persecution, mounting pogroms, and of course the expulsions that are going to be coming, that the community, Jewish community in France is going to end really soon. After the first crusade, 50 years later, we have the second crusade. The second crusade brought more of the same to Jewish communities in France and Germany, slaughter, rape, pillage, forced conversions. In fact, 
um, we could argue that that essentially ended life in France. The survivors, whatever was left of the communities, moved either into Germany, thus the name of Ashkenazic Jewish community, to England and to elsewhere. There's two famous episodes that we know from this point in time that really represent what it was like to live as a Jew in France and Germany uh, during the Crusades. The first story is about Rabbi Amnon. We read about this um, during the High Holidays. There's a prayer, a special prayer we say, Unisana Tokov prayer. The story goes that the... It was right before the holidays, the high holidays, and he was invited by the bishop of his town, invited in quotation marks, to convert to Christianity. He told them he wanted three days to consider it. He felt terrible that he actually mulled this over for three days. He came to them and told them that he absolutely refused to convert to Christianity as a response in typical barbarism of the time. They cut off his hands and his legs. He was brought, as he was being bleeding to death, he was brought into the synagogue, and he uttered the famous prayer that we say till this day, Unasana Tokif. That's one story. Another story, we're told of the Bali Tosafot, of the students, of the students of Rashi, who developed uh, the Talmud after Rashi's passing, uh, that they also experienced tremendous, um, tremendous persecution, and in fact, they were so dedicated to their craft, to writing this monumental commentary in the Talmud, that there's a section of their commentary in the book of Baba Kama that they were, that they were, they were middle of writing it, and they didn't have any ink, and they actually punctured themselves, and they used the blood to write this commentary, and right afterwards... Uh, they were massacred as well. This really shows essentially the, the duality of the experience of the Jewish people at that time. On one hand, tremendous, resolute, and steadfast commitment and dedication to Torah study, commitment to scholarship and to writing down and advancing the Torah at any cost. On the other hand, devastating Christian persecution of the Jews. That's the Ashkenazic community in France in, and in Germany. Uh, while the Ashkenazic Jews were undergoing this tremendous upheaval, the Sephardic Jews in Spain were in the middle of what is known as the Golden Era of Spain. They were under Muslim control and an, ira- an iteration, the best form of iteration of, of Islam that was very moderate. So essentially they lived in a relatively liberal and tolerant society that allowed them not only to move around and to be free to practice their religion as they saw fit, but also to be part of the society. In fact, they were part of society in every way, economically, politically, and even intellectually. There was uh, a, a, the flow of ideas really uh, uh, went from the Jews to the Muslims and back. It was really a good time to be alive, at least relatively. Uh, this would be, of course, short-lived. Like every good time, all the good times of Jewish history are short-lived. That should be a trend that we should have picked up by now. Uh, the wonderful times that the Jews are going to experience under the Muslims in Spain is going to be initially disrupted by the return of the other form of Islam, the more radical form of, uh, of literal interpretation of the Quran and, and what that implies for the Jews and the non-believers and all, all the other heathens. But it's finally going to be destroyed when the Christians finally complete their reconquista, their recapture, reconquest of Spain, and bring with them the cruelty that they unleashed on the Jews throughout the medieval times. The golden age of Spain is not going to be complete, quite finished, before the birth of the Rambam. Like we said, the Rambam was born to his father, his father Rabbi Maimon, who was a Jewish judge. 
uh, in the year 1135, TP oriented in the times. He was a direct descendant of King David, like Rashi was. He had a tremendous intellect, a superior mind, photographic memory, and a tremendous willpower to study uninterrupted for years. Uh, at the age of 15, unfortunately, uh, his life in Spain would end uh, with the emergence of the Almohads. The Almohads are a very radical group of Muslims, faithful to Muhammad, as their name suggests, and what they brought to them, their version of controlling the Jewish people, uh, was very inhospitable. And the Rambam and his family, along with many other uh, Spanish Jews, fled. Initially, they were in Fez in Morocco. When the Ahmads eventually captured that part of the world, they moved to the Atlas Mountains, where they lived in caves for nine years. The Rambam, at the age of 24, he emigrated to Cairo, to Egypt, where he would spend the rest of his life. When he got there, he published the first of his monumental works, and that would be the complete commentary on all of Mishnah. This was, had never been done in a thousand years since the Mishnah was written. It had never been done, and the Rambam, at the ripe age of 24, is the first to do it, to publish a commentary on all of Mishnah. Not only was it a commentary Mishnah, interspersed in the commentary Mishnah is also all of the Talmud that is the elaboration of that Mishnah. He had several innovations. First of all, uh, he wrote it in Arabic, but with Hebrew letters. He used the language that the people knew, so it could be understood by the people, but also written in the sacred script of Hebrew. Not only that, uh, he introduced the novel idea of writing introductions. He wrote three massive introductions in the Mishnah. Firstly is the introduction to Mishnah, which explains the process of the, to- of the transmission of the Torah and the structure of the Mishnah. For example, he says... Why all 63 books of Mishnah explains why they all, they're in that order, for example, but he also shows the big picture of how the development of the oral Torah uh, was done. He has an introduction to Perkavot, to the, to the book of Mishnah that talks about ethics and character, where he a- analyzes called the Shemona Prakim as well. He analyzes the various components of man's soul and talks about what, it's, uh, what man's mission is really all about. And he has an introduction to uh, the last chapter of the book of Sanhedrin, where it's a complete treatise on reward and punishment. He talks about Messiah, about the afterlife, resurrection of the dead, Allah Mabah, heaven and hell, everything. Plus, he gives his enumeration of the 13 principles of faith. Once he is in Egypt, he begins to write what would be his magnum opus and perhaps the most significant book written since the Talmud, the Mishnah Torah. Mishnah Torah means repetition of Torah. And if you get a sense of the scope that he's trying to achieve when he calls the book Mishnah Torah, a complete restatement of Torah, that's indeed what he was aiming for. It's a revolutionary book. It's an encyclopedia of Jewish halacha and Jewish tradition and Jewish living that is organized to perfection. We spoke about the Talmud. The Talmud has everything in it, but it's interspersed. It's an encyclopedia that's not alphabeticized. Comes along the rabbi, he says, I'll alphabeticize the Talmud. Not only that, I'll actually give you the conclusions of the Talmud. The Talmud is working primarily with debate. It doesn't really give you the conclusion. They wanted to leave that oral. Comes on the Rambam in the footsteps of his predecessor, the Rif, Rabbi Al-Fasi, who began this. He radically developed halacha uh, by completely reorganizing all of Jewish law and writing it down uh, in a tremendously careful and organized way. So it's 14 books. Each book is divided into sections. Each section is into subsections. It's all broken down 
perfectly. In fact, those that came afterwards that would write on the Rambam, they would actually understand what the Rambam is saying from where he placed it. It was organized so perfectly. In fact, his, con- his contemporaries write that the Rambam wrote with such precision that it rivals the precision of the Mishnah. What were his goals in writing down the Mishnah Torah? His goals, his stated goals, as he writes in his introduction, that all the rules should be accessible to the small and to the great. All of Torah will be here in these books. Each and every commandment and all the rules and all the legislations and of all the sages and all the prophets, all the way to the times of the Rambam. Quote, this is a quote from his introduction. A person should need no other work in the world, no other book in the world, with regards to Torah, to tell you all the positive legislations, all the customs, all the negative legislations, everything, since the time of Moses till present day, all you need, says the Rambam, is two books. You need the written Torah, five books of Moses, and then the books of the other Moses, of Moses Maimonides, and you know everything. Obviously, a tremendously ambitious undertaking. And he was successful and unsuccessful simultaneously. He was successful that his work really transformed Jewish life and it became the foundation of halacha. He was unsuccessful, both where he tried to write it for the layman, uh, because it ended up being a work for the scholars, and also he was unsuccessful because it, it was intended to be the work to end all works, the book to end all books, when indeed the opposite effect happened. He spawned more books written about the Rambam than any other book. In fact, to date, there's been roughly 10,000 books written as commentaries on the Rambam. He set out to write the book to end all books, the end of writing the book to begin all books. Uh, additionally, the Rambam wrote the Guide to the Perplex. The Guide to the Perplex is the third of the Rambam's major literary accomplishments. Each one of them on its own would guarantee the Rambam a place on, t- on the Jewish Mount Rushmore. All three is just unbelievable. Like I said, the Commentary Mishnah, the Mishnah Torah, the Restatement of Torah, and the Guide to the Perplex. The Guide to the Perplex is an explanation of Judaism overlaid on the dominant philosophical beliefs of the time. This would be very, very controversial, as we'll see in a little bit. Uh, That's the Rambam. But the opposition to the Rambam began in his life and reached a crescendo after he died. The things that were most controversial about the Rambam's writings was A, the Guide to the Perplex, and B, the first of the 14 books of the Rambam. That's called a Sefer Hamada, the Book of Knowledge. And the first section is, this, is the section called Yisodia Torah, the Foundations of Torah. And he sets out a vision, a, an image of Jewish theology, of Jewish philosophy, that was very controversial by uh, his successors. And in fact, there were some Jewish fanatics that were opposed to the Rambam to such a degree that they gathered his books and they started to burn them. There were Jews in France that they actually informed on the local authorities. They told the Catholic Church that the Rambam's books are against Christianity. They made slights against the religion and they caused that the Church of France burned all copies of the Guide to the Perplex. Almost immediately after, the Church issued an edict against the Talmud. And what happened was just horrifying, where uh, they burned, in the center of Paris, they burned all copies of the Rambam, and several years later, they burned all copies of the Talmud in the very same location. The Rambam's detractors, 
that questioned him, this was the turning point because they realized that the Almighty was showing them that the reason why, the reason why the copies of the Talmud were burned was because that community had gone after the Rambam and burned his writings. And in fact, one of the great authorities and and leaders of the time, Rabbeinu Yonah, wrote a book called Shari Tshuva, The Gates of Repentance. And he wrote that as a method of atonement for his own personal opposition to the Rambam. The next great Jewish figure of the era is the Ramban. So we have Maimonides, and then we have after him Nachmanides. Nachmanides would uh, assume the mantle of leadership of Spanish Jewry. He's, again, one of the great scholars in Jewish history. Of course, he wrote a monumental commentary on Torah, along with many, many other works. Now, over the course of his life, the Christians are going to begin their reconquest, the reconquista that we mentioned prior, over Spain that would spell doom for the Ramban himself and Jewish Spain. Uh, The turning point of his life when he was compelled to have a debate known as the Disputation of Barcelona with a local Jew who had been baptized. So the story goes, this is the year 1263, for those keeping track. There was a Jew converted to Roman Catholicism by the name of Pablo Cristiani, and he told the king that he was going to prove the truth of Christianity and the falsehood of Judaism from the Hebrew Bible and from the Talmud. And not only that, he told the king, he's going to prove it in a debate with the greatest rabbi of the time, with the Ramban. Now, the Ramban agreed to engage in this debate, provided that he was allowed to speak freely. At that time, it was against the law, it was illegal for anyone to say anything against uh, the Christian doctrine, but the Ramban was afforded a reprieve against that to speak freely during this debate. During this debate was as one-sided as you could possibly imagine. The Ramban, of course, trounced his opponent, so fantastically and completed and completely that the king awarded him 300 gold coins as a victor. And in fact, he said the very famous line, never before in human history has a man argued so effectively for an untruth. Once again, uh, this, this demonstrates that sometimes, no matter what you do or say, you cannot possibly convince your opponent of your position. Uh, while the Ramban was guaranteed immunity to say as he pleased, and which he did, uh, from that time, time on he was pursued relentlessly by the church. He was so bad he had to actually flee to save himself. He ended up in the land of Israel. He came to the land of Israel, was so devastated and so bereft of Jews, there wasn't even a minion. He started rebuilding. In fact, there's the Ramban shul in the old city of Jerusalem that he built. Uh, he built it subterranean because at the time it was controlled by the Muslims, and the Islamic rule is that if you want to have a Jewish or any non-Muslim structure, it has to be built underground, so that's why it's subterranean, and that was extant until 1948, where it was destroyed uh, in the War of Independence, and it was rebuilt in 1967 after the reunification of Jerusalem. The Ramban's successor to leadership of Spanish Jewry was the great Rashba, one of the foremost commentators on the Talmud, someone who we have today extant 3,000 letters that he wrote to Jews from his time. Okay, so that's the Sephardic community. What's going on with the Ashkenazi community? When we left them last, they had begun the tumultuous period of Christian persecution 
that began with the Crusades. Despite the upheavals and the migrations that the community faced, they were led by a series of great scholars and heroic leaders who began the process of rebuilding. Again, multiple times in Jewish history, the Jews are beaten down, they're persecuted, they're sent away, they're sent uh, on migrations, they're, set, they're, they're expelled, and they always find a way to rebuild. So there's four pivotal leaders of the rebuilding of Ashkenazi Jewry. The first one of them is the Orzeruah. Orzeruah is the book that he wrote, which was a codification of, of Jewish law. He essentially tried to do what Maimonides did in a shortened version. His student was the Maharam Mirottenberg. He was the leader of Ashkenazi, community, of Ashkenazi Jewry of the time. In fact, they used to write him letters. We have, once again, 3,500 letters that we still have today that he wrote. He was imprisoned by the authorities, and they held him out for ransom. This was a common tactic. You want to raise money, what do you do? You take the rabbi of the, of the town, and then you put him in prison. You say, you want him back? You want your leader back? You got to pay for it. Uh, but the Maharami Rottenberg was convinced that if he allowed his community to purchase him back, this would have a domino effect and this would be happening again and again. Therefore, he refused, absolutely refused, to allow himself uh, to be redeemed. And in fact, even when he died, after he died, the authorities would not release his body until he was ransomed. And in fact, he left in his will not to redeem him even after he's dead. And he remained actually, his dead body remained in the hands of the authorities for seven additional years after he had died. Uh, his student, his primary student was the Rosh. The Rosh, Rabbeinu Asher ben Yechiel, another transformative leader and commentator of the Talmud, he wrote a commentary on all of Talmud, which again is trying to draw out the halacha, of the Talmud. We see this theme again and again. We start off with the Rif, Rabbi Al-Fasi, continue with the, with the Rambam. The Orzerua took a stab at this, and now the Rush is going to write a Talmud-based book of Jewish law. We see this is the theme of the time. It's clear that the, the rabbis and scholars and teachers of this era, they recognized that the end of the period of oral Torah was coming, or at least the period of oral Torah, wherein there's enough peace and stability and security for teachers to impart everything they, that they knew to their students. Therefore, collectively, as, you know, as leaders of this period, they decided to write down everything that they knew in a way that can be studied by future generations and creating a written version of whatever was still oral about the oral Torah. Now, the rush was persecuted really terribly in France and Germany, and he actually moved... To Spain. So this is an interesting story in history where the Ashkenazic leader moves to Spain, to Muslim-controlled Spain, and becomes the leader there. Very interesting dynamic where an Ashkenazic luminary is presiding over a predominantly Sephardic constituency. His son, another, is the fourth of the great Ashkenazic leaders of this time of rebuilding. He is known as Rabbi Yaakov ben Asher, known by his book that he wrote called The Tour or Arba Aturm, The Four Rows, a book so vast on Jewish law that today it's printed in 22 volumes. In fact, today it's still widely studied. Every book that we've mentioned, by the way, is still widely studied in yeshivas till, till this day. What he did, what the, what the Rush's son, uh, the Tour, did, he divided 
Jewish law into sections, different sections, four primary sections, uh, and an entirely different system of organizing Jewish law. He essentially, if we, we look at those that wrote halacha, they fall into two categories. You have the Rif and the Rush, that they essentially didn't change the order of the Talmud. They only wrote on the Talmud. Thus, it's like an, a, it's like an addendum to Talmud is their commentary on Jewish law. And then you have the Rambam, who creates this entirely new system of organizing Talmud, and the Tur, who did the same, where they take the Talmud and rewrite it, essentially rewrite the halacha parts from scratch. In, in two centuries, we're going to meet Rabbi Joseph Cairo, who's going to take all of this work, all of this halacha, all these tremendous works of the Rishonim, and write the authoritative book, authoritative book of Jewish law, what's known as the Code of Jewish Law, the Shulchan Aruch. And he is, in fact, going to base his system on the tour system, on those four sections. So thus, the four sections of the tour become the four sections of the Shulchan Aruch. Indeed, at this time in history, Ashkenazi Jewry is rehabilitated. While it looked like it was heading for extinction as a result of the Crusades and the ensuing atrocities perpetrated by the Christians against the Jews, instead of being in danger of extinction, the Jewish knowledge was now being recodified, being organized, being meticulously preserved and accessible for all the communities uh, that were to follow. Consequently, we could say the academies that were destroyed were rebuilt, the manuscripts that were burned were rewritten, and the Jewish lives that were in disarray were re-established. The rush came with his community to Spain. They would find temporary haven in Spain, but like we mentioned prior, the era of tranquility would not last very long. With the Christian reconquest of Spain, it brought with them all the anti-Semitism and all the hate and vengeance that the Christians did during this time to the Jews in Spain. Now, I was thinking as I'm preparing this, there's so much, there's so many errors and so many communities that were wiped out. I wanted to organize all of Christian anti-Semitism into one section. If we want to try to enumerate the extent of Christian persecution of Jews, Throughout the ages, it would be very difficult. Um, certainly not medieval times when the persecution was very fierce and very steady. There are many, many instances, many episodes. What I wanted to do is kind of organize the various forms of anti-Semitism and hatred Christians perpetrated against the Jews during this time. So firstly, at every point in history, in our history, we find economic marginalizations of the Jews. Jews were not allowed to own land. They were excluded from any trades, such as being farmers, being physicians, being pharmacists, being blacksmiths, tailors, shoemakers, goldsmiths. All these skills and trades they were not allowed to do. They were forced into occupations of less than high repute, such as tax collecting and money lending. And of course, they were, they were subject to ever discriminatory and confiscatory taxes that were levied against them, number one. Number two, they were viewed socially as, they were socially stigmatized. So firstly, during various points in time of their history, they were forced to wear certain clothing, certain badges, certain hats, certain clothing. They were banned from wearing certain clothing. But also collectively as a nation, they were viewed as a diabolical, demonic, satanic, sinners, who were evil and greedy, who hated and killed Christians, etc. 
there were forced conversions, many, many episodes of forced conversions over this point in history. Uh, many times in history they would have forced debates, but these debates were one-sided debates. The Jews were not allowed to speak and argue their side. They would, have, they would stage a puppet debate against Judaism, against Christianity. Jews were not allowed to say anything. And as a result of the Christian victory of these debates, they would have forced conversions. Blood libels and pogroms were rampant throughout this time. The blood libel claimed generally that the Jews needed Christian blood. They would kill Christians and especially Christian young people, drain their blood and use it for ritual and religious purposes. What those purposes were didn't really matter. It could have been baking matzahs for Passover. Some, uh, in some instances, it was because they, they, they said that the Jews needed it for Kiddush. They would have Kiddush every Friday night on Christian blood, as asinine as in, and insane as that sounds. Even ridiculous claims that were bought by the local the gullible Christian community, uh, like all Jewish men have to menstruate and need blood transfusions, or Jews suffer from hemorrhoids because they killed their God, and therefore they had to replenish their blood supply, or circumcision demanded they need to replenish the blood supply. Whatever it may be, these is, this is the, this was, this, it followed this, a trend. The, there's a dead Christian, or if you don't have a dead Christian, you kill one, and then you say that, oh, the Jews did it for whatever reason, and you rile up the masses to come kill and pillage and rape and massacre. If you owed a Jew money and you didn't want to pay it, the fastest way to do it is to claim there was a blood libel and that, that will get rid of your problem. Additionally, the Jews were always the scapegoat. When things went wrong, who was to blame? It was the Jews. The best instance of that is, of course, the black plague, the bubonic plague, the black death that happened in medieval Europe. This was a a plague that swept through Asia. It swept through Europe and was indiscriminate in its killing of millions. Uh, Over the period of 50 years in Europe, the numbers are... Astronomical. They claim uh, on the lower end that 25 million, between 40 and 60 percent of all of European of Europe, was actually killed via this plague. Now, Jews died at a lower rate. Jews died as well, but they died at a lower rate because of the sanitary practices of Jewish law. So, in Jewish law, you have, we know you have to wash your hands in the morning. Practice unheard of in medieval. Uh, in the medieval world, you want to eat something, you got to wash your hands. You want to you use the restroom, you got to wash your hands. Not only that, the Jews bathed at least once a week before Shabbos. Every Jew bathed. Additionally, Jewish law demanded a certain degree of sanitary cleanliness because if you want to pray, you want to say blessings. There has to be, uh, there cannot be any any any, any open latrine uh, or any foul odor. Thus, they had to keep their places clean. And of course, the Jews were fastidious about the expeditious burial of dead. They did not allow the dead to hang around. The notion of fleas containing airborne viruses that, uh, that caused the plague was unimaginable to the Christians in Europe. And the, to them, it was only one, there was only one cause for this, and that, of course, was the Jews. How did the Jews do it? It didn't matter. They, initially, they claimed the Jews poison the well, then they, the wells that provided water, and then they stationed guards around the well, and the plague continued 
well, if they didn't poison the well, they must have prayed. Whatever it was, there was a given. The given was the Jews caused it, and therefore they're responsible. As a result, many, many countless Jewish communities were slaughtered. Of course, the worst of all of this was the expulsions. Uh, for example, uh, this, is a, this, is an impartial, this is a partial list. In the year 1290, King Edward I issued an edict expelling all Jews from England. In fact, England was Judenrein, was bereft of Jews for 300 and some odd years until 1655 when they were allowed back. Shakespeare actually probably never actually met a Jew, yet his rabid anti-Semitism is displayed in his writings because anti-Semitism apparently transcends any personal experience or any logic. In France, the Jews were expelled in 1306. And, and in 1394, how did they get back to be re-expelled? Well, the answer to that is simple. Uh, typically, when the Jews left, the Jews were kicked out, and they left, the economy tanked. As a result, they said, okay, come back, and then they kick them out again. Germany, Austria, Lithuania, Hungary, all these places, and on and on and on, they had their expulsions of the Jews. And of course, the most famous of them is the Spanish Inquisition, the Jews being kicked out and expelled from Spain and Portugal in 1492. Spain at that time was home to a massive Jewish community, roughly half a million Jews. When they were forced to either choose to convert to Christianity or to leave, it was about 50-50. Half the Jews left, half the Jews stayed and converted. Those that stayed and converted, most of them, the majority of them, were the Moranos. Moranos is, is the name for a pig, because they were, uh, they were Jews who were behaving externally as Christians, but in secret they were Jews. Uh, and in fact, the Inquisition, they established the, what's called Acts of Faith, the Autos da Fe, uh, where they would have trials of Christians, Christian converts, that were suspected of being Jews, and they would commit cruelty and unspeakable acts of tormenting and torturing the quote-unquote guilty, including, of course, public burning, etc. So what about the Jews that left? The Jews that left, they faced an uphill battle. Where are they going to go now? During the period when the Jews had to leave, many died along the way. In fact, the numbers uh, estimated at being 25,000. Where they go? They went elsewhere, primarily east. Poland, which is going to be the bastion of the Jews from then on in Russia, Lithuania, but also as far as Turkey and Italy and elsewhere. Uh, An interesting note is that the day after the Inquisition was the day where Columbus set sail for America. And in fact, this is again another trend in Jewish history. One door closes, another door opens. We're indeed an itinerant nation. We are wandering Jews. We can never feel comfortable and secure in our host nation, only in Israel. We maybe have a few hundred years of peace and respite, but we know that doesn't last. And if Jewish history teaches us anything, it's that we should never really get comfortable in our place of exile. In conclusion, this era is a remarkable era of Torah growth. We see so many great scholars, a robust period of scholarship and writing never before seen in Jewish history. Without Rashi, we wouldn't be able to study Torah. Without the Rambam, we would not be able to practice Torah. So many compilers of Halacha, the, the, the Rambam, of course, and the Rif, the Rosh, the Rashba, the Ramban, etc., etc. So many people 
we didn't even have time to talk about. A partial list of that would be like the Ran, the Ibn Ezra, Rabbi Nubachia, Rabbi Yudha Levi, wrote the Kuzari, the Chinuch, the uh, Baal HaMa'or, the Mordechai, Don Isaac Abarbanel, who wrote the Abarbanel. All these wrote magnificent monumental works that are still studied to the, today. And what seems likely is that this period saw really an end, and the end was the last time where the transmission of the oral Torah can be done completely from teacher to student. Therefore, they wrote and wrote and codified and clarified in a way that there's going to be a written version of the oral Torah to pass on to the next generation. During this time, we see the Jews start off in Babylon, they move to North Africa, to Tunisia, to Morocco, to Spain eventually, to as far as to England, to France, to Germany, really everywhere. In order to be successful, the Jews have to be what they always have to be, they have to be resilient in the face of tremendous upheaval and tumult, and, and tumult in the face of persecution and expulsion. They have to rebuild and rewrite, reestablish their lives and their Torah. And of course, this is an era marked by unrelenting Christian persecution. One perhaps silver lining from this era of Jew hatred is that the Jews were made united. During the time when the forces from without, the hosts that were so uh, relentless in their, in their marginalization of the Jews, we find really almost no assimilation and intermarriage. The Jews were united. In the modern era, we're going to see, from this point on, we're going to see the beginnings, and eventually the floodgates are going to open, the Jews are going to be emancipated, the shtetl doors are going to be opened, the doors of universities, the doors, the doors of citizenship to Europe and to the greater world are going to be opened. And unfortunately, along with that and the positive that it brings, it's going to bring massive tidal waves, tidal waves of assimilation and of abandoning of Judaism. And as we know very, very well, anti-Semitism does not end with the Jews being allowed to be reintegrated into greater society. Next week, the last of the five uh, millennia of Jewish history, the story of the Jews in the modern era. 